Alive and Kicking is proudly supported by Classic Football Shirts, the home of classic, rare and retro football shirts. For 100% genuine non-reproduction retro shirts, head to classicfootballshirts.co.uk and use the bonus code AK90s to receive a 10% discount on your order. Oh, how I still love that theme tune. Welcome to Alive and Kicky in the 90s football podcast. The podcast more 90s than a Nigel Mansell win at the British Grand Prix. I'm Ash Rose and tonight we're looking back on a football tournament because it's international week. We're going to do our tournament pod. Um, but it's kind of a strange one because no one seems to want to remember this tournament. So I was looking back at the 90s and also we've done Italia 90 a few weeks ago, which you can check out on iTunes on the uh, previous pods. And of course, we'll do Euro 96 and World Cup 94 and France 98. But the forgotten one is Euro 92. It seems that there's not a lot of love for Euro 92. So tonight, me and my guests are going to try and chew the fat over why it's not remembered as fondly as some of the other tournaments and just get some memories from... There were some highlights of it, as I can remember, which we'll talk through uh, in the rest of the pod. But before I do that, let's just do the housekeeping. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at AK90s or on Facebook at the same address. And do drop us any comment on there, as I always say. And if you haven't subscribed to the pod and you've got an iPhone or an Apple device, why don't you just go on iTunes, click on subscribe, and then the pod will pop into your device every week without you doing a single thing. And if you're feeling really, really generous, why not drop us a rating and a little review as well, because that helps us out tremendously. Uh, we're still also sponsored by the brilliant football shirt website, classicfootballshirts.co.uk. Again, as I've said on the previous pods, if you haven't checked it out, especially with Christmas coming uh, and you like your retro kits, these are from the actual time, proper kits. And if you go in there, see what you want, pop it in your shopping basket and type in the bonus code AK90s, you'll get 10% off your purchase. And while we're talking about Christmas as well, as we are, it's what, six or six or seven weeks away. I've never done this on the pod before, but it, it does spawn from a book uh, of the same name called Alive and Kicking, the ultimate football guide to the 90s. If you do love the pod and want more memories and where we all talked about them from, I'm doing the cheap plug. Uh, you can go on to Amazon or the History Press. Uh, it's a bit written by myself where we all spawn this from. Everyone's looking at me like, hurry up, <laughs> especially because the island game's on. But yes, so if you like your 90s, nostalgia the book is out now but that's introduced tonight's guests who i managed to get people to talk on about year 92 people want to embrace a, a tournament that others haven't so much in the past um as we welcome back 90s guru for your um match ball is it your match ball now it's my match ball yeah thanks for having me yeah back, that's chelsea fan paddy o'sullivan also returning our happy hammer and someone who's probably still recovering from a bit of ronda Rousey on saturday night mr ma writer ralph welch hi ash thanks for having me back thanks for coming on and supply some new blood we have writer Paul. <laughs> Costa and media mentor, a Reading fan, David Spencer. Oh, I like that intro. That was That's good, good, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well researched. I pra- yeah, yeah practice that one. <laughs> so the before- Can I plug a book? Plug a book, go no, on. It's nearly Christmas. Plug, oh, okay. Anyone else wants to plug anything? It's nearly Christmas. <laughs> You're going to hear it for the next few weeks anyway. Yeah. Um, so before we do our CVs and go to Euros, there's a few things that happened in the 90s this week. On the 17th of November 1993, 
England concede after nine seconds against San Marino and but win the game 7-1. Everyone remember the name of the player that scored for San Marino? David Galtieri. Oh, we are. Oh, hey. Have you been on the internet researching that already? Or? No, I've got the football shirt. <laughs> That's great knowledge there from Ralph. <laughs> on the same day in the same year, 17-11-83, Paul Bodin missed a spot kick against Romania that would have sent Wales to USA 94. Who knew they had to wait till 2015 to get anywhere as near to qualifying for a tournament? On the 17th of November 1999, England qualified for Euro 2000 despite losing to 1 0 to Scotland at Wembley. On the 19th of November 1997, Christian Grove arrived at Spurs with his travel card in hand. We all remember that. And on the 22nd of November 1995, Blackburn lose to Spartak Moscow in the Champions League as David Batty and Graham Lasso come to blows on the pitch. So before we talk tournament then, uh, we're going to do our CVs. Um, Paddy, you're your third, so we're now talking goals right, with okay. you. So yeah. favourite Chelsea goal from the 90s? Um, I thought about this a lot, Ash, actually. We sort of talked about, uh, you, you said that's what we were going to talk about first on the CVs. And I've changed my mind at the last minute in the pub next door. Um, I'm going to go for Dennis Wise's goal in the San Siro. Can you uh, say that without singing the song? I'm, I'm trying Just. to, there's a swear, there's a swear <laughs> word. I might have to change it to yeah. like sausages or something. Um, but um, it was a brilliant ball through by Roberto Di Matteo. First touch from Dennis Wise. Um, and he slotted it in underneath the keeper. I think who was Bastiano Rossi and might have that knowledge. Might have that that wrong, but that sort of elevated Chelsea back into the into the big time in the, mm. in the Champions League. And that's, what year was that? That, 19... that was very late. Nineteen ninety nine. It's a very it, late yeah. entry for yeah. the nineties. But yeah, it's a goal that I'll always always remember. No, good goal and a good song that it spawned off as well. And outside of the bridge, favorite nineties goal. Now you contacted me earlier and said this is a belter. So the ant- anticipation is is bubbling under my it stress is, train journey. Um, it is a belter, but I don't think it's what you're expecting. <laughs> so, so far on this pod, you've talked about goals of beauty and skill. Mm-hmm. What you've left out is comedy. Mm. Uh, very true. Yeah, very true. In and you always want to provide it. In 1991, <laughs> uh, Lee Dixon got the ball for uh. Arsenal <laughs> in the right back position. Uh, about 30 yards out, turned round without looking. And this was before the pass back rule, so yeah. I'm not quite sure what he was doing anyway. Turned round. Lobbed it over David Seaman's head uh, in front of the North Bank, who were absolutely stunned. And I've got to admit, if you have never seen it's this great, goal, yeah, you great, have to YouTube it's a great it. Is it, co- is it Coventry they were playing? It was Coventry, yeah. yeah. So that is, that is <laughs> good randomly one. my goal of the day. Yes, I like that. No, no, no just because it's, against, it's an Arsenal goal as well. You've got no, no, it's, got, kind no of... it's got nothing to do with that whatsoever. <laughs> it's just pure comedy. No, great moment in there. Uh, moving on to Ralph then. We've done your players. Now we're on to your matches so favourite West Ham match from the 90s well I mean it'll probably come as no surprise being a West Ham fan but my favourite game is a win over Tottenham and it comes in 1997 and it was a season when we started with uh, Florian Radichoyu and Paolo Futre <laughs> up front uh, Paolo Futre's knee was held together by chewing gum and a piece of string <laughs> and Florian Radichoyu decided that people tackled too much in England yeah. so it was no surprise we hit February and we were bottom of the league we'd got one point in six games we'd been knocked out the FA Cup by Wrexham at Upton Park and Harry had tendered his resignation and then uh, he did what he does best he got the checkbook out we brought in Hartson and Kitson terrific players brilliant signings brilliant players uh, and they made their home debut on a Monday night football against Spurs and it was a real ding dong um, Julian Dix put us ahead with a bullet header Hartson Kitson scored a uh, goal each and then uh, Tottenham replied and then Julian did what he always did with, from the penalty spot. He smashed in the winner, 4-3. And it was the start of a comeback that kept us up. And two years later, we finished fifth in the league, our highest Premier League finish. 
Yeah, that's a good. That's a good one. People seem to forget Paul Kitson. He's such a nineties player, isn't he? Mm. The curtains. He had a proper curtain haircut. Tremen- like a, tremendous haircut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like Ian Walker still got injury it. record. Yeah, yeah terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Ian Walker still got that haircut as well. I see it on Twitter the other day. Brilliant. And outside of Upton Park, then I'm going to go right, right back to 1990, and what I still maintain is the best FA Cup semi-final day ever, mm. which started with Palace beating Liverpool yep. 4-3. That was your lunchtime kickoff, and by the time your pulse rate had lowered enough. <laughs> you went and you saw Manchester United play Oldham. Yeah. Um, Oldham, uh, I despised because they'd done us 6-0 on the awful plastic pitch <laughs> at Boundary Park. So I was rooting for Man United that day. And it was, it was another, just an absolute yeah. classic. Fergie clinging on to his job. Danny Wallace put him 3-2 up in extra time. And then the evergreen Roger Palmer got, uh, <laughs> oh, got a late equaliser for Oldham. Um, and I think... If I could say anything to the collective minds of the FA, it would be to bring back FA Cup semi-final day like that. Yes. Yeah, they just, were not glorious. Bring, not just bring that back, play them on the same day, neutral stadium. Oh, I was about, you took the words completely out of my mouth. If I could change yeah. one thing not, about not football, Wem- not Wembley. stop playing semi-finals at yeah, Wembley. Absolutely. It's the most annoying yeah. thing. It takes completely away from the yeah, final. Great choice. It's something we'll talk about and we'll do an, we'll do an FA Cup pod uh, later in the season when the FA Cup rolls around, but that is, yeah, a sticking point completely. Um, then lastly, then, David, we'll go right back to the start. Reading as well. <laughs> Well, we haven't had Reading, so... A new well, there's a surprise. <laughs> well, there's a few of you about. Well, we have had Bristol Rovers, which was really random, and Yeovil, what? so... So Reading's come after them. That yeah, is, that says a lot. That is yeah. quite worrying, yeah. <laughs> so, best 90s player at, well, been Elm Park, wouldn't it, in the 90s? Well, that's why it's such a crucial decade. We'll maybe come to that yep. in a second. But yeah, at Elm Park... Not a. I, I was thinking about what sort of choice you kind of go with a fashionable choice. My instinct has always been, for some reason, that uh, Stuart Archie Lovell, uh, bless him, was my favourite <laughs> Reading player. Partly because in 1988, so before our decade, he was in the uh, he was in Wembley for the Simod Cup final, which was Simod Cup final. Yeah. there's a title. Yeah. Uh, when we made our Wembley bow, that was our first ever Wembley appearance against Luton, the League Cup winners. They'd beaten Arsenal. And we beat them 4-1, and Archie Lovell was amongst the fans on the terrace at Wembley. That's how cool it was. You arrived at Wembley, you climbed over and decided where you stood, as opposed to you got stuff with the seat that you, you had to buy. Fantastic. Archie was there, and then he played for us through, actually, seven seasons, eight seasons through the 90s. And uh, he was a central figure in our big game of the 90s, which was the playoff final, mm. which a lot of neutrals will remember as one of the best playoff finals, yeah. sadly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, a yeah. real a, a real player, and and for some reason, us fans get really big on the local lad. But because I mean, he's Australian, but because mm. he came through the academy and he was a proper Reading boy, just made it that more special. Mm. Well, I forgot to ask you first of all, of course, as well, sum up the nineties of Reading then, because it would be a, a team that obviously not many of us would have been aware, of, especially in the nineties, because the the top flight was a long way away, wasn't it? At that point, it was a long way away. The best way to sum it up is the turning point, really, mm. a landmark decade, because. It's when we moved from Elm Park to the Medeski Stadium. It's led to 17 years of people saying the name of our stadium incorrectly. Yeah, I still can't say it properly. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> I'm not bitter about yeah. that. I was it's ex- just ready. Yeah, it's just ready. Yeah. <laughs> the Madstad is the yes. easiest way yeah. to say it, then you don't say it wrong. I was trying to explain to someone earlier on about the spelling, and they just sort of, their eyes shut after well, about... Poor know, John, seconds. he probably has that his whole life, in fairness <laughs> to him, though, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. Yeah, actually, I've met someone who said, yeah, I've, I've had dinner with John Majeski, and I went, well, if you've had dinner with him, you've probably should know how to say his name <laughs> yeah but um yeah the Medeski stadium arrived 98 uh 22nd of august 
um, that team Luton reappear in our history, mm. having played them in a similar cup final, our first game. So Grant Brebner, Scottish uh, legend that he wasn't, uh, scored our first ever goal at the Medeski Stadium. Um, yeah, it was a, a fantastic decade. If you are sort of a, a fan now and you think, well, Reading are kind of a championship side, mm. fairly stable in that kind of division, uh, sort of a, an Ipswich type yep. size club, not with a history, etc. Uh, before that, we spent most of our life in Division 4. Yeah. In the 80s, Division 3. Uh, in the 90s was the switch to being up in the second division a bit more. Uh, but since then, since the Medeski Stadium, it's been the best time in our club's history. And those fans who are below 30 probably need to be reminded of that. <laughs> there you go. Nicely summed up the turning point then. So, and you've said you're a Reading player. So outside of Reading, who would be your favourite 90s player? Well, I heard some um, great stuff about Alan Shearer last yep. week, which was my instinct to go with that. Because you can still go with that. That's fine. Because for most neutrals, again, as a Reading fan, you're looking at the top flight and kind of picking a team that isn't Manchester United Chelsea Arsenal etc so Newcastle were a lot of neutrals favourites obviously during the 90s and Shearer when he moved from Blackburn to to Newcastle kind of sacrificed after a season not to go to Man United we know he had the call a couple of times Uh, just some of those goals even for Blackburn that first season he moved yeah Unbelievable game at Crystal Palace that was his debut wasn't it debut unbelievable goals, goals and he was just a legend, and obviously during Euro 96. You also discussed last week how the post-football career affects a yep, legend's we status, did. which yes. I thought was really interesting, yep. because for a lot of people, dull pundit that never says yep. anything. Same with Michael Owen as well. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah, that's his, his mantle is slipping very quickly. But yeah, Shearer, fantastic player. I actually, because you talked about him, I did put Peter Beardsley's name down. Oh, that's one we haven't had, yeah. Because you didn't mention him, and just as a lovely player, he did feature, obviously, in the 86 World Cup as well, before the 90s, but yeah. a lovely, lovely player who kind of would struggle to get into a lot of teams now. Yeah, he would, yeah. Different type of striker as well. Always yeah. kind of, he's kind of in the hole, but kind of not. He was, he was a very unique striker, it, wasn't he? Exactly, and kind of a thinker, but then when you heard him speak, you wondered, it's obviously just a football <laughs> yeah. brain. But, you know, that sort of player, and just lovely to watch, and his link-up with, well, Lineker pre-90s, obviously. And was, Italian 90 as well. Was though, yeah. immense, yeah. yeah. Well, Italian 90, we've already done. And Paddy, you were there, weren't you? We spoke about it and very missed it, and it was good reminiscing. We talked about that as the decade... The, uh, sorry, the tournament that changed English football. Correct. So what the hell happened in between 90 and 96, really? Especially at Euro 92, because... As I said at the top of the pod, it's a really strange one because people don't seem to talk about it, uh, Euro 92. Uh, I think, firstly, it was quite a streamlined tournament. There was only eight teams in it, which seems ridiculous now, especially as we're going into a a summer next year where there'll be 24. Um, So I think that doesn't help. There wasn't a lot of teams in it, but there were some good moments which we'll talk about it. But let's talk about England, first of all. Um, Transitional period? I think that's how I would sum it up. Let's start with Ralph. Looking at the squad, I've got the squad in front of me. It's a real mix of the Italian 90 team, a slight new generation, and then those random names that Graham Taylor, the manager at the time, always gets kind of thrown at, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fondly remembered, really, as probably the worst ever England squad at (laughs) at an international tournament. Give Um, it six months. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you're always looking at the next one. He's right, though, to be fair. We'll see how Jesse Lingard does. Keep it 90s. And I mean, essentially what happened was that Graham Taylor had spent two years disassembling the most popular England team Mm. we'd ever seen. We'd gone from the high of Italia 90... We were playing a fantastic brand of football that actually a lot of us didn't expect. Um, Super players. 
And then there, there was a mixture of bad luck and there was a mixture of just awful decision-making as well from, yeah. from Graham Taylor. The bad luck was that Brian Robson's body had given up on him. Paul Gascoigne was spending the best years of his career yeah. in a treatment room. But what Graham Taylor had done was he'd pushed flair players like Chris Waddle and Peter Beardsley to the sidelines yeah. in favour of much more kind of pragmatic, dogmatic, middling Premier League players. Um, I mean, I think... It's fair to say that the likes of Neil Webb, Colton Palmer, Keith Curl, Andy Sinton, sorry Ash, uh, good old Tony Arthur Daly yeah. and Nigel Clough, who were all in that squad, wow. um, they didn't yeah. really go on to have great distinguished international no, careers, did all. they? And he left, uh, which it, I was surprised as well. point that you should tell him that they're your guests on the show. Well, Colt, we're hoping to talk to Colton Palmer <laughs> at some point, so, and, and Andy Sinton as well. But again, <laughs> have, we, have, we have guests on this show every week, as, as people will know, but this has been the hardest pod to get someone to talk to, mainly because... No one really wants to talk about Neil Webb would have been available I'll just tell you that he's applied for the Reading job on a number of occasions Really? Well, he's isn't he a postman? Po- he's a postman in, in Reading working very hard doing that uh, posting his application directly <laughs> to <laughs> he, always delivers. he doesn't buy he doesn't do sign for he just sends it yeah I can imagine yes but yeah, you look at that England squad and what surprised me as well, he, you know, he picked Nigel Clough and a young at the time Alan Shearer he'd only just yeah. made his debut against France earlier that year but he left out Ian Wright and I know yeah, Peter, was, Peter Hunt yeah. who was here last week is his number one fan but yeah. he was top scorer by quite a long way I was going to say on, on the one hand you kind of felt sorry for the turnip as he was called after uh, Euro 92 because yeah. he had as Ralph was saying he had, he had some bad there were some bad injuries Gascoigne I mean you're losing one of the best players in world football there um, as Ralph was saying Brian Robson's body had given up but he also made some shocking decisions and Ian Wright scored 29 goals that season and didn't get Included mm. um, seems a bit bizarre, and as I was saying, on the one hand, you felt sorry for him because there was, I mean, how many international managers have three right backs get injured before a tournament, yeah. which leads them to play David Batty at right back? Yeah. They Colton you know, Palmer at sweeper as well, didn't he? Yeah, the he, he played Colton Palmer at at, um, at sweeper, and he had he had Mark Wright as we were saying earlier. Had Mark yeah. Wright um, dropped dropped out of the tournament right at the last minute, which meant that he couldn't actually replace him with anyone. So on the one hand, as I say, he had bad luck, but on the other hand, he made some awful decisions yeah. as an international manager, didn't he? And I think everyone's sort of everyone's sort of nodding around the table. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think everyone's kind of agreed. Yeah, agreed well, do I not that. like that? I mean, we'll talk about that famous documentary yeah. uh, at some point during the season because it's a it's a brilliant piece of television when we do on screen as well. But it just told the the pressure. And, and how he was under at the time. We always remember the Carlton, Carlton that he used to say. But yeah. looking at the the tournament itself, they qualified ahead of. Uh, Ireland, which people seem to forget as well, and I remember the the night they did Gary Linker's late goal in Poznan as well. I remember running around my living room and winning that score. But David, looking at the the three games that they actually played, I mean, it was it wasn't great viewing for the England fans, was it? No, but it's surprising because you mentioned that France friendly, and I was at Wembley when Shearer and Lineker played together. Yep. That's the only time yep, I think they played together. Yeah, Rob remember, Jones made his debut that night. Yeah, and obviously we had the Jeff Thomas yeah miss well miss. we can't even call it a miss and it's you? like a corner flag thing but yeah. it's not really I've yeah. checked it I've checked it over the weekend and it, you know doing him an injustice it was inside the penalty area when it <laughs> just, rolled off the byline just, just. Yeah. but um, I actually remember them playing really well in that game and being really excited yeah. about where England were possibly going um, obviously rather stupidly not again because Graham Taylor was a manager obviously with his Aston Villa team had been, you know, playing some good football. That documentary kind of exposed perhaps his weaknesses yeah. after. So a lot of our kind of looking mm. back exposes perhaps someone who was completely and utterly like Steve McLaren 
out of his depth yeah. at international management. But yeah, at the tournament, I, I remember that Alan Shearer didn't figure as a starter. No. And I, because what I wanted to do before this was I didn't want my memories to be, you know, like those Vox Pops programs when the talking heads are all going, oh yeah, I remember that video yeah. from 1971. Yeah. <laughs> and actually they don't because they're 15. Um, but um, I did have a look back at sort of the summary video and thinking, what a combination of players that was a strange mix. Keith Cole was in the yeah, squad Keith and Cole. stuff. Yeah. You know, perfectly, I mean, he'd probably get in the squad now uh, because of the paucity of talent, but again, not exactly an international it's level. Adequate, that's what I think. It's adequate, decent footballers, but like Ralph said, not a lot of them went on to have great international careers. And it's not, I think 1990 was only two years ago. I know we were robbed of Robson and especially Paul Gascoigne. Yeah, there's, a massive, there's a massive, there's a massive difference. Massive transition at, period there. Look, Sh- Shilton's not there, Shilton, Robson's I mean, not there. Look, Des Walker, um, Stuart Pearce, the Stevens. Terry Butcher's not yeah. there. Uh, there's a lot there's a lot of players who came to the end of their career at the end of mm, Italian yeah. 90 international career moving forward two years you try and integrate a load of new players with a load of old players but also leaving a lot of talented players yeah. out it doesn't make it's, any it's, sense well the Ian Wright thing is is completely bizarre and I don't know if he's ever talked about that yeah. since to try and no. justify how you have someone who scored almost 30 goals especially to pick squad. his teammate ahead of him in a squad in Alan Smith which is even yeah. more bizarre because Merson as well yeah exactly as I mean as Alan's, a centre forward yeah. technically Alan Smith never a regular goal scorer no. at all no I think yeah. Smith was top scorer in the early 90s once yeah. but at that time yeah, he'd, he'd been eclipsed basically yeah, by you Ian think, Wright you think he? Wright was the, the, yeah. new, boy, was, the it, new boy in town it was almost as if Taylor was trying to basically make himself he was trying to make a stamp on it he was trying to almost eradicate everything Bobby Robson had done because there were doubters about Graham Taylor taking over from Robson and it was kind of like he was going to do it his way he was going to pick his players they were going to play his brand of football and he was going to prove everybody wrong and having a target man who didn't really score Mm. uh, and getting rid of flair players like Waddle who was you know just a year or two earlier was European player of the year at Marseille and uh, I remember Dennis Bergkamp before the tournament couldn't believe that Chris Waddle wasn't playing Last time I was on the Italia 90 pod, we talked about Chris Waddle and yeah. the European Cup final in 91. I think it was 91. Oh, astonishing. He, he rang yeah. rings yeah. round. Yeah. Um, I think it was Belgrade they played in the final. Rang rings round. Yeah. Best player on the pitch. Yeah. And how how can you possibly make a case that Tony Daly could play instead of Chris Waddle? <laughs> no. it, was, it was just mind-blowing. But then I think when you go back to kind of where Graham Taylor went afterwards with the documentary, which we'll probably go on to, that was a vanity project where yeah. he believed he would prove to the world he was a top-class manager, he was the best England manager, yeah. and we were going to go and prove something. And uh, unfortunately, that didn't quite go didn't so well. All, no. And he spent 20 years as a pundit sort of since proving that we were probably right what yeah. the documentary uh, exposed I, yeah. I think and, and the only man to ever coin the phrase do I not like that so. <laughs> but just, can I just sorry sorry, Ash, I was just going to say about Italian ice because I know you covered it before yeah. but because for a certain generation that's a special tournament that's yeah. why we're talking about the 90s I always reflect that actually we were pretty terrible for the whole tournament and that's often forgotten we played well in one game Germany semi-final mm. played well-ish against Holland, okay. Rest of the games, Mark Wright header against Egypt. Yeah. Right, we were awful in that tournament. And it just goes to show that how, looking back, you go, that was a great side. We played, yeah, in, then in Euro 96, we played well in one game. Yeah, Euro 96 is definitely one that people look back on and forget that... You make, you make your yeah, own luck in these yeah, tournaments. Exactly. The Switzerland game So you kind of think that's where picking the right personnel to do mm. the right job 
is really, really key because you kind of just scrape through these yeah. tournaments unless you're lucky and are a team that are an exception, which over the years, to Greece. be honest, yeah. and we're going to talk about them in this tournament, yeah. you, you know, Greece and a Denmark yeah. can win a tournament by just doing the simple things. Yeah. Final point in England before we talk to, uh, to today's guest. I mean, they had, so they played three games. It was a goalless draw against Denmark, which was very, very uneventful. Mm. Another goalless draw against France, um, which is quite apt to seem as we're playing France tomorrow night. Um, the only thing I remember that was Basil Bolly nearly manhandling, you know, with a headbutt. I was about, oh, yeah. I was about to say, yeah, we, we discovered well, in yeah. that tournament that Stuart Pearce wasn't the hardest man on the yeah. planet. You're going to headbutt that. someone. Stuart Pearce uh, isn't your first yeah. choice, but no. fair play to Basil yeah. Bolly. Yeah. And then the final game, um, I think the two points is, you know, the, the goal from Brolin, which was Brolin, Darlene, Brolin, the famous commentary from, uh, I think it was Barry Davis, actually. Um, and then the substitution. I mean, I think he's lived, I mean, him and Lineker had that relationship where we never quite knew if they got on. And yeah. again, he wasn't. Taylor's man he no, was, he was no. Robson's man he'd been England's man for so long um, and again Alan Smith comes out I mean it was a horrible way for Lineker to end his England career wasn't yeah, it yeah a little bit yeah I remember there was a, uh, a sketch on fantasy football actually where they they, they said oh we don't, we don't have a recognised goal scorer on the bench Alan so you'll do <laughs> realising that the next clip they'd show Shearer and everyone went oh right yeah, yeah. okay maybe we should have put him on it was the only time I saw Galen to get angry and I think his whole football career. And I mean, for Gary Lineker, I mean, he didn't throw yeah. his shirt or anything, but if you look at the clip back, he, he looks quite uh, discontent on the bench there. Um, but baffling decision. Really annoying goal celebration, by the way, by Brolin. <laughs> Can I just say that that's just one of the most annoying <laughs> clips that repeats in my head from a tournament that we're going to discuss that kind of gets put back at the memory bank for a lot of football fans. But what that spin round celebration yeah. just needs a slap. <laughs> that was before he discovered Yorkshire pudding. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Exactly. Right. Before we talk about the rest of the tournament, then uh, we were hopefully talking to, to Colin Palmer. Fortunately, his schedule got too busy for us to talk to, but we will get him on the pod later. So we are talking to a 90s footballer, someone who doesn't really relate to Euro 92, but still took some great memories at the other end of the decade as well. So we're talking to former Preston, Ireland, and Sunderland midfielder Kevin Kilban. Kevin, welcome to Alive and Kicking. How are you doing? Yeah, very good, thanks. Very good. Thanks for joining us. You're a little bit different to some of the guests we've had before because you played more majority in the late era of the 90s and you started at Preston. What do you remember about coming through yeah. the ranks at Preston North End and, and those early days in, in the late 90s? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I left school in 93, so I started off with Preston in the old Division 3, uh, bottom tier of English of English football. You know, it's still I'm still, still a lot of pride that I managed to play through all the four divisions through the 90s, which was, which was great for me. I, I'll be, I made my debut in the Premier League right at the end of, of, of 99. But, you know, it, it, it was a great achievement for me that I could have played in four divisions during, during that spell. Again, starting off in 93 as a YTS, coming through to sign professional at 90, in 95, winning the old Division 3 uh, championship in, in 95, 96 at Preston. That was... That was a great spell in the career. It was very much on the up through the 90s, moving on to West Brom, becoming their first million-pound signing in 97, which, you know, is something you can look back on now and you finish with, with a little bit of pride. And then stepping into the Premier League in 99. So, so much happened maybe in a short space of time through the 90s. And it was very much on an upward curve through, through that uh, spell, yeah, in the 90s. When you were making it through at Preston, I mean, I think it's different now. One days, were were you type of sort of the YTS who had to clean the boots and and do things like that? Yeah, we, I mean, we swept the stands. We had to, you know, we had to do everything: paint the dressing rooms. Basically, we 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 ran the club. I think at that spell, we just really maintained the club. But when we were YTS, we had every 
every job possible at, at the club. Um, and again, it was—I mean, it was a great learning experience. I, I, I won't—I won't say we didn't moan about it every day, but looking back, it was—it was definitely the making of every player during that spell. That you know, Sam Allardyce, of the youth team manager, he instilled in us a, a real, you know, work ethic that that maybe took us took me through and uh, took me through to to be playing days with, with Ireland, which you know. Albeit the accent won't tell you that it was that was the probably <laughs> the greatest ever team that making me debut for Ireland in '97 against against Iceland and again it was very much during that upward upward spell during uh, during the '90s where it was you know it was a great period for me I think really that was kind of what it was but maybe going back to your, your question there it was I think the, the making of every player during that spell was having to muck out dressing rooms clean kits clean boots make the tea that's what it was about. Yeah, were you at the club when that was just before David Beckham was it? So you would have played with David Moyes and under David Moyes, wouldn't you? Yeah, no, I was a YT when when David Beckham came in. I never, I, I, I never played alongside him in the first team. Um, but I, I was actually ball boy when he was there. We used to ball boy as YTs because we had to get the ball back quickly during that spell. Well, Gary Peters was manager. David Moyes was in the first team uh, that, uh, during that spell. But yeah, David Beckham came in. I remember he scored a great free kick for Preston. He put him a corner in, in another game. I think he only played about three games, but then he went back and it was more or less a, more or less a permanent fixture for United after that spell. But again, then I had David Moyes, who was my captain when I first broke into the side of Preston. Then he became player coach. We had I had a lot of characters around me, big big personalities that took me through for the rest of me of my playing career. Really, mm. you mentioned you ended the career at, at uh, the nineties, sorry, at, at Sunderland and in the Premier League. I mean. The progression, how big a gap did you find it? Or because you came up kind of bit by bit, did it always seem like, oh, this is the next step? Well, yeah, you say bit by bit. I think it happened quite quickly for me. I, I mean, obviously I was making, a, you know, quite a big impression in the lower league. Um, you, saw, you know, obviously got promoted in my first season uh, out of the old Division 3 into into Division 2. Then within another year I'd, I'd moved on to, to, to West Bromwich Albion for, for a really big fee at, at Preston and then you know moving on to then straight away more or less in what within two and a half years I'd, I'd moved on to the Premier League then so it, it all happened really quickly I think the step up from league, uh, from from the Football League to the Premier League is huge it is and mm. maybe that was maybe a lot of it was in my mind as well I knew that I was careful I knew I was good enough but I think it took me time to adjust because the game, the pace on the game, the players were all quick, strong, extremely professional, and, it, and I, I think it did take me a little bit of time to adjust. And I think today I knew that I had the ability to, 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 to progress at the Premier League, but I think it just did, did take me that little bit of time. But once I adjusted, I was I was pleased with how everything went through my career. And finally, then I mean, of that late nineties era, who were the best players that you played with and, and played against? You know, I played against so many in the lower league that maybe went on to progress. Kevin Davis was one that, that I used to play against quite a lot at Chesterfield. Danny Murphy was another I played against the crew. Um, you know, so many that I played with and against in, in the football league went on to have great careers in the Premier League. But then when I came into the, into the Premier League at, at the back end, you know, I was playing along, uh, playing against the likes of Keane, Zola, um, trying to think of other players, maybe that Bird Camps, yeah. Tony Adams, all these sort of players that that I would have played against, that that would have been real. Alan Shearer, of course, was probably one of the best. Another one I would have played against. You know, all of a sudden I was watching these guys on television, and then think all of a sudden you, you're thrust into playing against them, and you've got to adjust quickly. But there's so many great, real, real great players 
they'll be considered greats within the club that I played against um, when, I, when I made that step up to, uh, to the Premier League with Sunderland. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time, Kevin. Good man. Thank Cheers. you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, some good memories there from our guests, but let's talk on uh, the rest of the tournament then. I mean, we haven't touched on Scotland, but in fairness to most of our Scottish fans, they're probably quite glad of that because, again, it was a bit of a nondescript tournament for them as well. I think that the obvious story and the real memory of Euro 92 is Yugoslavia. Oh, no, wait, sorry, no, Denmark. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, who, who are Yugoslavia? I'm yeah. obviously, um, it's obviously, not even a place. It's not even, yeah. it's not even a place. Well, neither uh, CIS, who are also yeah. in the tournament. Yeah. I'm obviously too young to remember these, these countries. Yes. Yeah. Well, for those who don't know, Yugoslavia did qualify for yeah. Euro 92. They went to be in the same group as England in Group A, or Group 1, sorry, it was called back then. Um, they were replaced at the last minute due to, to war in their country by Denmark, who finished second in their qualifying group. And one of my favourite quotes of the 90s, actually, is from Denmark manager Richard Mollen Nielsen, who said, I should have been put in in a new kitchen, but then we decided to call away and to play in Sweden. And he sounded quite like, disappointed that he didn't put in a new kitchen, but I'm sure... But he, Mrs Mollen Nielsen was probably yes, more disappointed. Was, but I'm sure by the end of the tournament he was, because, of course, we know the story that Denmark kind of upset... One of the in football's biggest upsets, tournament-wise, especially up to when Greece won it in 2004... Uh, they went on to beat Germany in the final. So let's talk about Denmark then. Michael Lyadrup didn't go because he stayed on holiday and thought it wasn't worth it. But Ralph Conn, talk to us about Denmark and, and that team and, and their journey through Euro 92. Well, I mean, uh, people compare it to Greece uh, when Greece won in 2004. But I think people forget that Greece played a horribly negative style mm. of football in yeah. 2004. What Denmark did was completely different. Um, I mean, the story is that they were they basically turned up for training that first day a week to go before the tournament they turned up in their flip-flops and their shorts and not expecting to do anything no pressure on them whatsoever and richard moller nielsen got them all round in a circle and he said right we're going to go we're going to go next week and i tell you what we're going to win this competition and the players who were under absolutely no pressure at all just really responded i think to that freedom and the belief that their manager gave them and it i think it's really become one of the great ultimate underdog mm. stories in football. I mean, it's one of the, those stories that makes you remember why you love this sport so much. Yeah. And it was there were so many stories within the team as well. I mean, we talk about... It was the, the, the day when we found out, really, that final was when we found out who Peter Schmeichel was. Yeah. You know, and he went on, obviously, to become one of the greatest keepers in the history of the game. And it was... They were just a really organised, workmanlike, honest side. But they had, mm. you know, they were stock full of good pros with a couple of flair players mm, sort of dab, yeah. yeah yeah here and there that gave them that little bit of extra but I, it was just a tremendous story mm. do you reckon every other every other team in that tournament must have hated Denmark probably because it's a sort of the equivalent of a sort of a kid not revising for his GCSEs yeah. turning up and like getting A styles <laughs> yeah. while everyone else revised really hard well it throws the rule book you out know? doesn't it it kind of yeah. every even now they go this preparation you know England yeah. have obviously already know what hotel they're staying in yeah. how long they're going to stay who they're playing yeah. in the friendly matches before next summer yet they rocked off like you said in their beach shorts you know Roland Nielsen was meant to put up a kitchen he's got his tall bow on they had nothing to lose yeah exactly maybe the the relaxed kind of atmosphere around the squad obviously benefited them and like Ralph said Peter Schmeichel and one Jon Jensen who ultimately (laughs) scored in the final as well David yeah that was a a, a storming goal and I think how many goals did he score in his Arsenal career I can say this although it's a a little bit annoying but a little bit brilliant at the same time and if anyone listens to it comes the QPR link Jon Jensen (laughs) scored one goal in his Arsenal career following the year 92 it was against QPR when we beat them 3-1 but it was a bizarre experience I was there that night um, 
we beat Arsenal 3-1 you know Arsenal have always been a bigger club in, than us there's no shame in that Paddy knows this story because I told it a million times and they were cheering as they were coming out and singing that we'd seen John Jensen score <laughs> Can't, wouldn't even have a, that little moment, but we did beat them three one at Loftus Road as well. So but that was fine. if you're going to score a goal, uh, then it's going to be in a final like yeah. that, and a, an absolute screamer of a goal too. I think though, I mean, in terms of the, I, I, watching the commentary from from the game after the victory, mm. I don't know who the the BBC commentator is that, that's summing up, but he, he does the big grand oh and you know this amazing story, mm. you know that's all fine, and I think everyone would say the right one for football, and you kind of. I just watched that earlier and thought, really? Well, I probably would say the right thing for football would be that the Netherlands won that tournament because they were the best side. Germany were probably the second best side. Mm. And Denmark, it was just a fan... I mean, I was supporting Denmark because they played Germany. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I remember going mad when they scored. But I don't think it was the right result for football. And I think sometimes people... That's an exceptionally pompous BBC thing to say at the time. Yeah, well, the game wrong. of the tournament, they say, was the semi-final with the Denmark, because that was probably the only standout game of the whole tournament the, yeah. that the Danish won on penalties, and Schmeichel saved a penalty from Marco van Basten, which yeah. is no mean feat, of course. It was a terrible penalty. Yeah, Terrible penalty. He kind of passed it to Schmeichel, to be fair. Yeah, and I think people... You mentioned John Jensen there, and everyone talks about him in this tournament, but actually there was an incredible story about the guy who scored the decisive goal on the breakaway, which was Kim Vilfort. Because Kim had actually missed the deciding game for Denmark in the group stage because his daughter was suffering from leukemia. Mm. And he'd flown home and she was seven years old and he was going to stay with her. He wasn't going to come back to the tournament and his family sent him home. He went home again after the semi-final and he said, I can't play in the final. His wife sent him back. And he goes on and he scores the winner. It was, it, there was little stories like that that made you think this is just one of those once-in-a-lifetime things. We've seen something really, really special here. And I think that's where it's absolutely fantastic for proper football fans that someone can do that, just breeze into a tournament, yep. kind of close, you know, by the back door, mm. as you say, come along and turn up and pass the exam yep. without having revised. Absolutely. Fantastic. Whether it was the right thing for football, because you look back at the, obviously, the Dutch squad we knew from 88... Euros was fantastic, but they played some amazing football, yeah. and the names are just amazing well, I mean, in their squad. I, I just want to sort of uh, you know talk about potentially some of the players that that played at that. Um, well, we looked talked about the team of the tournament, earlier, I, didn't we? I mean, absolutely. You know, this is the tournament that everyone forgotten. I think we've kind of established yeah. that through through this. Well, part. I forgot what Russia were called. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, some of the names you look at the team of the tournament, you're looking at like this is off the top of my head now, but you're looking at like Burkamps, Rijkaards, players Brolin. of that, players of that ilk. Um, I'm going to mention one who, as, who as a child, I absolutely loved because you only saw these sort of games in tournaments. That was Thomas Hassler, who two great free kicks in the tournament. Yeah, as well. Now, if you wanted, if you wanted to pick anyone. To take a free kick, always go for yeah. Hasta. But whatever happens, I always remember watching whatever like, happened to him. <laughs> I think it must have been on some like Eurosport and it was like Bundesliga highlights and it was in German, but all you hear was like the German and then Torbus Hasler. It was such a yeah. German name. <laughs> but you see these days, Ash, Thomas Hasler, because of like the Champions League and everything that goes with it, yeah. you'd have heard everything oh, about course, him right yeah. down to the day he yeah. was born. Whereas back then You'd, you'd never heard of him, but I think you want to play with that name in your squad. Don't you? It's like a Muller. Yeah, you know, you know they're going to score goals, don't yeah. you? You know, you could be called Fred Muller, but you're still going to score <laughs> goals. Talking of names as well, that Eric Cantona also played in that tournament, which is something I didn't realise until I watched some footage earlier. But there's one name, and I've said this my entire life, who played for France and scored a fantastic goal in the tournament. He's the most French-sounding man hey. of all time. He should have been mentioned last week on our Strikers podcast. He's another 
fantastic striker as well, Mr. Jean-Pierre Papin. That's my worst fresh accent I could do, but what a player. That was what a name. just noise. There, there was, was no but it's just Jean-Pierre Papin. He was just the most French-sounding name I'd ever heard. And it, great again, goal he scored there too. It was a great goal. Yeah, he was um, a great player. We're running out of time already. So we've talked Denmark. I mean, the good thing is that there was only eight, only eight teams in it and we've talked about the highlights. There's a couple of things that I want to mention about the tournament. Um, firstly, the laziest mascot of all time. Um, because they just copied Euro 88 and changed his kit. They didn't even give him a name. They called him Rabbit. I mean, come <laughs> on. So, I know. It, so it was a rabbit called that Rabbit. Was a rabbit. Yeah. It was actually a rabbit. Wow. Who yeah. they just copied from wow. Euro 88 and wow. just changed his kit. I mean, Almost you know, the Italian the 90s chow, they went all out. They went all, all Art Deco with him and you had the tree, you know, the oh. colours on him. No. Euro 92 we'll just take the rabbit change his kit we could have stuck an England shirt on him and he could have played right back yeah, yeah, true, yeah. probably did didn't he but I remember in the sticker book he, that was, he was in different kits that's the first Panini do you think the original mascot maybe had some trouble in the Balkans and therefore couldn't <laughs> had make been it replaced at the last time yeah. Replaced, yeah. maybe he was in the CIS wondering where he was <laughs> I just thought that was a bank yeah exactly and the <laughs> other a bank thing taking uh, part I in tournament? certainly remember and I'm, this is one of the things that's in the book as well cheap plug um, is the, the theme tune from ITV's coverage which was by Paul Young and it's one of the most 90s sounding tunes you'll ever hear. I'm not going to try and sing it. It's called You Are the Number One. So go. I'll put it on Twitter uh, tomorrow once you've listened to the pod. It's so 90s. It's like REO Sweet Speedwagon or Boy Meets Girl. It's that type of really cheesy You're kind just of... listing your music collection. I'm not lying there either. It <laughs> totally is as well. I, I've known him for years and that's actually true. Yeah. <laughs> but it is. And a really, it's not quite... It's not in the league 94 when uh, BBC had America and uh, ITV had Gloryland as well, which which was another cheesy, but a brilliant, brilliant piece of music that's to the time. Um, before we go, then, anything else? We, we, have we ever forgotten anything about the Forgotten Tournament? So I'm just going to go around quickly. Paddy, anything else you want to say? Or you've got, each of them have got a lovely lot of notes here, so there must be something that we haven't quite covered. I'm just reading my notes here, Ash. Is there <laughs> anything we haven't covered? No. No, there oh, we go. actually, yes. Very quickly. Apparently, the last Saint and Greavesy... It Ever? was the last Satan Graves here. Yeah. Ever. There Ever. The last year in 92, which I put on Twitter earlier, actually, because it's really amusing, because it spends the most first 15 minutes with Greavesy hugging Ian St. John in the most tender kind of way. They but look like they'd had a few beers. They look like they've had a really romantic weekend, but the, the thing that makes it brilliant, the cherry on the pie, is that he's wearing a Viking helmet, which is just so random and slightly racist at the same time as well. Brilliant. But yeah, last Satan Greavesy was in 1992. Uh, Ralph, anything else? Your mounting of notes there you'd like to add? Well, I'd, I'd just say that um, I, we haven't really mentioned um, the, the Scottish fan who kissed the policewoman. Oh, I've seen that, yeah. Yep, the, that was probably Scotland's highlight of the tournament. <laughs> uh, a, a drunk Scottish fan. It's closest yeah. they got to scoring. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> boom, boom. At least they were there, because they're going to be feeling well left out, especially if the Ireland game's gone the way we hope tonight as well. They're going to feel very left out next summer. So, David, anything else we haven't covered on Euro 92? I, I don't think so, other to say that in a kind of general tournament thing, and this is something I just personally feel, tournaments are better when England aren't there for me. Well, we'll talk USA 94 probably in a few weeks or if not in the new year and it's my favourite tournament so I'm going to slight I'm going to go crazy for that one but that's a great tournament and we'll talk more on that as well it's a good point but yeah especially that England team possibly (laughs) (laughs) but that's the tournament that was uh, forgotten so I think we'll now move on and forget that and talk to next week when we're talking video games of the 90s so if you're into your FIFAs and your sensible soccers and international superstar soccer we'll be talking about them next week on the podcast but until then thank you Paddy thank Thank you you. Ralph thank you David thank you you very much welcome back anytime soon Armash Rose keep it 90s
This podcast is a West 12 Media and Burble Media production. Alive and Kicking is proudly supported by Classic Football Shirts, the home of classic, rare and retro football shirts. For 100% genuine non-reproduction retro shirts, head to classicfootballshirts.co.uk and use the bonus code AK90s to receive a 10% discount on your order. Alive and Kicking! 